0: Fourth century theologian bishop Gregory of Nazianzus said of the incarnation, what was not assumed was not healed. In other words, what Jesus didn't take on himself, he didn't heal. Well, Jesus assumed our heritage, and he will heal it. As we look at this genealogy from Matthew 1, I hope you'll be listening Uh, to the broken human heritage that Jesus received so that he could redeem it. And I hope that you find echoes of your own heritage in there. I hope you hear what Jesus can heal you from. Matthew divides this genealogy, if you go to your gospel reading in the bulletin, he divides the genealogy into three sections, um, which makes it real easy for us. So we'll just look at each section to see a different part of the heritage that Jesus receives and heals. The first Heritage that Jesus receives so that he can heal is the heritage of the poor and the powerless. When we start with this first section, Matthew summarizes as being from Abraham to David. We see that Jesus receives the heritage of the poor and powerless. We'll begin with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, these guys were not really impoverished, but God had called them to a life of instability. The book of Deuteronomy calls them Calls them together as a father, a wandering Aramean. They had no recourse for famine. Whenever there was a famine in the land, they had to flee to Egypt. Abraham and Isaac were constantly worried about being killed by some king because of how beautiful their wife was. When Abraham was called to set out on this journey, he had no children. So Jesus starts by receiving that heritage of instability. But then let's continue to look at this section. It's It's unique because it contains several references to women, which is pretty unique, definitely not necessary in a genealogy from the ancient Near East. Several references to women who faced a hard, systemically unjust situation. You see, in this time period, and this is kind of the key piece of understanding uh, behind a lot of these situations for these women in in this genealogy, is women had little safety as individuals. At this time in the ancient world, safety came by being attached to men, primarily to either a husband or to a son. And so the first mention of a woman that we have is of Tamar. Tamar was a Canaanite woman who, married, who was married to Judah's son, and then she was widowed before she, was ever, she ever bore children. So she had no husband and no son. According to the culture, the father-in-law, that's Judah, should have married her off to uh, the next eligible son, which he sort of did, and that son treated her so badly that God killed him for it. So she actually should be married off to the next son. But Judah doesn't, doesn't want to deal with it, so he just tells her to go back to her father's home. Now, when she goes back to her father's home, you have to understand She's no longer a prospect for marriage. She's been married twice before. She has no children. She's barely better than a servant. He's sending her back to dishonor and shame, completely unwanted. So, what she does is she actually tricks Judah, her father in law, one evening into impregnating her. And when all the deception clears and everybody realizes what has happened, Judah actually has to declare that he was unrighteous, and that Tamar was the righteous one. It's an amazing story of an incredibly unjust situation. Jesus takes that into his heritage. Similarly, Ruth the widow also had no husband or children until God rescued her. And other women in this this genealogy, including one in the next section, Bathsheba, but also one in this section, Rahab, were subjected to the sexual appetites of men, Jesus takes that into his heritage, but then there's another group of poor and powerless that Jesus takes in in this heritage, and it's it's not named exactly, but it actually happens between somewhere between the names. If you look at the names there, somewhere between the names Perez, Hezron, Perez was the father of Hezron, and then some it ends somewhere around Nashon and Salmon. These were people who were enslaved in Egypt. The generations included there were enslaved in Egypt. See, Israel had gone down to Egypt because of one of those famines. They had stayed there and become numerous and Pharaoh became worried about how big they were. So he set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens is what Exodus says. And it didn't work. So then Exodus says that that the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people work as slaves. And that probably lasted for hundreds of years. And near the end of that time, the Egyptians began to kill their children. Yeah. Jesus takes this heritage of the poor and the powerless as a part of his own heritage. Now, Some of us here today may actually have a heritage that's not completely different. Ta-Nehisi Coates tells the story of a man named Clyde Ross in an article for The Atlantic. Mr. Ross had grown up in Mississippi. He had seen his father's land stolen, and to escape this life, Clyde moved out of the South and eventually made his way to Chicago, to the North Lawndale neighborhood. In 1961, he bought a home, but he couldn't buy it the way that a white person would. A white person who wanted to buy a home would go to the bank and get a loan, and the loan was probably insured by the FHA, the Federal Housing, uh, I think, Administration, maybe authority, Federal Housing A, a. <laughs> there you go. Um, and it was probably insured, which meant that it was a lower down payment, and, uh, and usually you didn't, the interest rate was lower as well. Um, so it was a really good loan to have. Um, and then as that person bought a home, it would, you know, they would acquire equity in the property the more payments that they made that kind of a loan wasn't available for a person like Clyde Ross in the North Lawndale neighborhood in 1961. The FHA didn't insure loans in African American communities. They were labeled too unstable. And so his only option was a predatory loan in which the principal he paid, the principal he paid was 200% the value of the home and also in which he gained no equity while making payments, which meant that one month when his boiler broke and he had to spend extra money to fix the boiler and he was a little short on cash for the payment that month, month he lost his entire down payment. He lost all the payments that he had made up to that point and he was evicted from the house. This is how Mr. Coates summarizes the problem of that day because it was systemic. The men who peddled these predatory contracts in North Lawndale would sell homes at inflated prices and then evict families who could not pay, taking their down payment and their monthly installments as profit. Then they'd bring in another black family, rinse and repeat. During this period, according to one estimate, 85% of all black homebuyers were victims of this system. Land, property, wealth, was systematically drained from the African-American community for the better part of the 20th century. To be born into a heritage of being oppressed is not an abstract concept. It's a tangible reality that affects every part of your life. And God the Son receives that heritage for himself. He names that heritage as his own in this own in this opening passage of Matthew. He has the heritage of the poor wanderer, the heritage of misogyny, the heritage of an enslaved people. Because he has this heritage, he has the power to heal it. Next, Matthew moves us to a section that he calls from David to the deportation. And in this section, he's going to show us that Jesus has the heritage of the privileged as well. This part of the genealogy takes place during the time that Israel is an independent kingdom. And all the fathers in this part of the list are kings. Almost the opposite of the last list. This list is full of powerful, privileged people. So we start with David. David is called the king. David consolidates power over all the tribes of Israel. He loves the Lord. He writes psalms. Many of them are in the Bible. His heart is dedicated solely to the one true God. He does not worship idols. He is the anointed one. He is the prototype of the Messiah, the Christ. And yet his heritage is still mixed. He still sleeps with Bathsheba and kills her husband Uriah. And he can't build a temple for God because God tells him he shed too much blood. So we move on to Solomon. Solomon and, unfortunately, a list of mostly bad kings. Solomon was also a powerful king. His wisdom was renowned in the world. As a young man, he really loved the Lord. He built his temple. He amassed wealth from Egypt, though, which was against the law, says it in Deuteronomy. He acquired 700 wives and 300 concubines, also against the law. He put Israelites into forced labor in order to build his palace. The longer he was king, he looked more and more like a pharaoh instead of a godly king. Because of his sin, God judges Israel. And the kingdom splits in two, north and south. And the kings we follow are all from the southern kingdom called Judah. And most of the kings that follow have a mixed heritage. Some are very wicked, some are good. But all are powerful men using power to wage war, to change culture, to amass wealth. We see Rehoboam. Rehoboam enslaves even more Israelites to do his work, and he brings in idolatry and prostitution into the land. Joram marries Ahab and Jezebel's daughter, and he worships Baal. Ahaz commits infanticide. He burns his own child on an altar to Canaanite gods. Manasseh converts the temple of the Lord into a pantheon where other gods are worshipped. Other kings like Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, they have a more mixed heritage. They follow the Lord, but they sort of still let the people follow Baal. And yet there are some powerful, some privileged people who do what is right. Asa, referred to in our text as Asaph, removes the idols and prostitutes. He tears down the image of the fertility goddess that his mother had erected. Hezekiah tears down the high places of worship of of the Canaanite gods. He tears down idols, and he has God's law read to the people. Josiah repairs the temple after Manasseh turned it into a pantheon. Josiah hears the law read, and he tears his clothes in grief, and he weeps. Now, probably none of us here are the children of kings or even the children of mayors or aldermen. But there's a growing cultural awareness among many of us that we've received a heritage of power that has been used for evil, like it was with these kings. We've received a heritage of ancestral sins, of oppressing others. And that heritage still grips us today. Before we were aware of it, We were born into a world that gave us advantages that were gained by taking things from others. And even in the midst of our desiring to repent of those sins, like Josiah to rend our garments and weep, we feel that the problem is much bigger than one person. Where do we even start? How do we even repent? The hope that we have is that Jesus has taken a history like this one into his own identity, which means that he can heal it. I'm not talking about a quick fix so that we just feel better and we move on. Healing really means fixing. But Jesus has the heritage of the bad kings of Judah, and he can heal that heritage. But I just want to ask us, are we praying? about racial reconciliation, the way that Pastor Michael Wright encouraged us to when he came and spoke to us? Are we weeping before God like Josiah? If we want to know where to start repenting, it's to start in prayer and weeping. Finally, Matthew rounds out his genealogy with the last section. And I'm going to call it here the heritage of the postponed. It's a list of mostly unknown names. Once you get past Zerubbabel, they're all people we haven't heard of. See, at the end of all the bad kings, the kingdom of Judah was conquered by Babylon. The nobles were carried off to Babylon for about 70 years. And after that, they were allowed to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the temple of the Lord and to wait for the presence of God to return to them. So they returned to Jerusalem. They rebuild and they wait for 500 years but there is no powerful descent of the Spirit of God into the temple as there was in Solomon's day. Prophets arise, Haggai, Zechariah, and they foretell of a coming Messiah, but then the prophecy goes silent. At times, the powers of the world nearly swallow up the Jews, but they break free, or at least they break even. Things aren't getting much worse. They managed to have an okay treaty with Rome. Things aren't getting much better. Rome can often be a pretty hard master. And I imagine for, that, for these generations, the return of God's power seems to be ever and again postponed. There remains this hope of a Messiah, but when? Now, for some of us, the images we've talked about before of powerlessness or of privilege, they might not have resonated. Instead, what you feel is this postponement. Maybe it's a postponement of the good heritage that you thought you would have, career, success, family. But for many in our country, postponement itself feels like the heritage, because nothing, nothing really gets any better. Everything just seems to rust. According to a Pew Research study, only 37% of Americans think that today's children will grow up to be more financially successful than their parents. It's just a heritage of postponement. And Jesus takes on this heritage too. And because he does, he can heal it. So have you received one of these heritages or any other? Jesus can heal it. The sin against your ancestors continue to create sin against you in your life, and you wonder why God would give you such a heritage? Does the sin of your ancestors against others continue to echo in your life, creating a realization that you have advantages because they were taken from someone else, and you're not even sure how God would have you repent of that? Do you have a heritage of postponement, of being conquered and forgotten, and you wonder if God is really going to show you his goodness? Or do you have some other heritage? You didn't choose it. You just received it. And you wonder if God can heal it. And the answer is yes. He can heal every heritage. God the Son took on a broken identity, a broken heritage, to heal every broken identity, every broken heritage. It's a work of healing that he's going to complete absolutely one day. Because every wrong will be set right whether we participate in it or not. But by the Holy Spirit, we can experience this healing of our heritage now in our spirits, in our bodies, and in our relationships. And it isn't a quick fix. God hasn't promised. Um, God's promised that the complete fix actually lies ahead of us at the return of Jesus. In Advent, we turn our attention to that longing that we have for Jesus to return and come and set everything right And this, the first Sunday of Advent, is usually in some way a meditation on the judgment of God. That's traditional. What people often forget is the positive aspect of the judgment of God, that when God comes, he's going to judge evil and establish justice, righteous systems. So we long for that and we wait for it. But perhaps there are some of you whom the Holy Spirit has nudged you during this sermon and you identify with a broken heritage And you feel presently that need for healing, and you wonder, can healing begin now? Yes, it can. Maybe God is calling you to relinquish anger and hatred. Maybe God is calling you to simply acknowledge the ancestral sins you need to repent of. Maybe God wants to show you his goodness as you continue to wait upon him. And when God heals our spirits, then he begins to also heal our relationships, If the Holy Spirit is directing you towards healing, I want to encourage you to step into that direction in your prayer life and in prayer with the church. That's the first place to go. Return over and over again to God in prayer to ask for this healing that comes only through Jesus and lift up the ancestral sins that are perpetuated in our lives, in our nation, in our own city. Receive healing from Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.